But the next assignment to make up for this one being very short is I'm afraid going to be very long, if you could see on this. The, the first one was to read it from 3 to 14. How many managed to do that? Oh, good. How many thought they understood it? Well, that's, that's, if you did, that's probably a bad sign. But because it's so incomprehensible. He, he is such a terrible writer. He, he presupposes that you know stuff where you, that you don't. And worse, I'm going to explain in a minute, he tries to sort of tricks you into believing that you're reading his view when you're really reading his version of the view he's going to refute. Let me say a word about that right away. That doesn't happen in the part you read, but it starts happening like mad in the next part. And I'm going to spend some time, it may seem crazy, and I've never done it before, but I'm going to tell you where he's not talking about his view, but the opposite, because he doesn't give you any clue, and it can happen in the middle of a paragraph, and then back two pages later in the middle of a paragraph, he's back giving you his view. Once you understand the book, you can sort of learn to play that game, but for the first time through, it's just devastating. And so I'm going to just tell you the places, I'm going to write it on the board right now, the places where, well, open your book, and we're going to look at, uh, what, I didn't bring it after all this advertising, that's amazing, I can't believe it. Oh, how can I warn you if I haven't got it? Well, I can, because I marked it in here, so don't worry, we'll just go through and find it. Okay, here we are, starting right out on page 15, he starts out giving you somebody else's view. And then on page 17, it says, the fact that a shape is, well, you think if he says the fact that, that must be his view. And it would be. The French, the translation is wrong. I mean, it, the word could have been translated the fact that. I think it's probably alors. But, but the right thing to put there is but. But the but is still part of the other view. It doesn't become his view until page 18, where it says, now, the sensation and images. Then, then he's telling you what he thinks. It's just his way of doing things, to, and it's interesting. And once you understand the, it's sort of brilliant, but it's but it, it, to try to get you to see the other view as, as convincingly as possible before he tells you what's wrong with it. It's not unlike Wittgenstein, but on a smaller scale, giving you this interlocutor that comes in in the investigations and tells you just the sensible things that you already believe, only you know, discover that this is not what you should be thinking. Okay, so that's one of them. I'm just going to go through and find them here, because I didn't bring the page in which I wrote them down. Okay, so much for that. And then the next chapter, Attention and Judgment, in the second paragraph, he starts with, this may be shown, uh, that that's not his view, and it's not his view for about 15 lines until it says attention. And then it, he goes over to his view, but not for long. On page 31, at the bottom, when he says it's true, that turns out to be a bad sign. You could, you could. That's all. That probably means he doesn't think it's true. At the bot, and it may be that that's but. I'm not sure. I didn't go back to the French. But it's his. He, it starts to be the view he opposes, three lines from the bottom of 31, and goes on being the view that he opposes until four lines from the bottom of 32, where it says, objects, question mark. Those are the main ones. 
I don't remember whether there's any more. No, here's another one, a long one, again. Okay, on page 43. Uh, just in, always in the middle of a paragraph, not that there are very many paragraphs anyway. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleventh line down on 43. To the world or opinion. Well, that's a good clue there. I mean, the world and opinion are usually bad guys. I mean, we know better. I mean, uh, that's, Wittgenstein could have said something like that. But it, it goes on being the view of the world or opinion. One, two, three, four, five. Thirteen lines down on 44, where it gets to reflecting. Then it goes back to being his view. I'm going to give you one more help. Only I see where... No, this is a different point. But keep, I'll tell you this one, too. There's a long assignment. What I just said was a kind of bracket in what I also want to say, is because we only read from 3 to 14, which is a very short to catch up with where I want to be and cover all we have to do, I'm afraid next time you're going to have a big chunk to read from 15 to 59. And now you've been warned how long it took you to read that. Now it's going to take you a long time to read this, so please start trying. It's pretty important that you read it before I talk about it because you have to get some sense of what's going on so that you can either agree with me or disagree with me or understand why I'm helping your with, with this or that. And then, of course, you're going to have to read it again after I've talked about it. And you're going to have to read it again before you write a paper on it. And that's, that's just what happens with a hard book like this. But all I can do to help this big, giving you this other chunk of reading, which finishes his uh, destruction of what he calls the traditional prejudices and gives you the return to the phenomena, is you can skip the part on Descartes. Because even if you had 25B, and even if you had read a lot of Descartes, you wouldn't recognize the complicated details about Descartes that he's going into. Being French, he's got to sort of settle his score with Descartes and set up his relation to Descartes, and he can assume that everybody's read Descartes since they were literally in high school. And, uh, but we can't assume that, and we don't care, and so you, can, you better skip from 48 to 52, plus the huge footnote on page 40, oh no, footnote 40, footnote number 40. Uh, I mean, you can go back and read that someday, but I, in order to get all that read, anything you can skip is the better. Now, that's all just laying out things. Do you have any questions about that or about, you know, how we're going to proceed or <coughs> any practical problems? If not, I'm just going to start trying to explain it. Yeah. Well, I just want to know, um, do you think you'll be, how many people do you think you'll be able to add? Ah, well, I, I, are there people here who weren't here last time? Let's start with that, who think who want to be in the course. That would be upsetting. Uh-oh. Put up your hands high. Don't hide. I mean, I've got to cope with this. One, two, three, four. I don't know about how, uh, that, but the way it looks now, we have 72 people who are on, in the course, on the waiting list, and fill in forms for t to being in discussion sections, even if they weren't. And that's all we can take. But I can pretty well assume that there's going to be some attrition, that, pe that, we're, that we're going to lose some of those 72. And therefore, if you wanted, if, if you were here last time and wanted to be in it, you're in it, isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. But if, and if you weren't here last time and wanted to be in it, and you hang around, you four or five people, I can, I can, 
pretty well assume that you will. I can't imagine that four or five people won't give up on this stuff. Uh, so, uh, but that's the situation. The graduate students, by the way, I should say, aren't assigned to discussion sections. They can go to any discussion section they please. It's definitely a, a, a positive thing and you should take advantage of it if you possibly can. But the, the way graduate students are treated is generally they don't have to go to discussion sections and I will grade their papers, not anybody in the discussion sections. Whether I meet with the graduate students or not, I'm not sure yet. I have to think more about that. Um, but I, there was one more thing. Oh yeah, about discussion sections for undergraduates, they are required. By that I just mean that basically you'd be crazy not to go. We've got two super TAs and this is super hard stuff. But I also mean that if you're on a borderline between say A minus and B plus and your TA is, is making a, figuring out your grade, naturally if you came to discussion sections and contributed, coming there just and taking up space is not, you don't get any credit for that. But if you come to discussion sections and discuss, then of course then you'll be bumped up to, uh, to the A minus side. And if you haven't, if the TA doesn't even know who you are, that's a very bad sign after 15 weeks, you'll probably bump down to the lower. So that's the way the requiredness of it actually has teeth in it. But the important thing is you'd be crazy not to come to your discussion sections. And we set it up so that everybody can come to discussion, can come to a discussion section. Now, any, I mean, that had to be said at some point. Any questions about that? So if you weren't here last time and you want to be enrolled in the course, just send me an email. Okay, yeah, send Rick an email so we have you on some kind of list. I took this, didn't I? Let me give it back to you. Okay. Uh, anything else? I mean, it's sort of almost too good to be true that everything is so clear this year. Have you all find copies of this when you, I mean, is anybody looking for the book who hasn't been able to find it? That would be very upsetting. Last time I taught the course, half the class didn't have the book because it was not ordered. Okay, you've all got it. Yeah. Some of the recommended texts are gone. Okay, that's interesting. Tell me, do you remember which? Uh, I think all of them. All of them. I, oh yeah, I noticed that. I went to the bookstore to check up on it. So, I guess we should order more recommended texts. Let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, it's, it's, uh, let me say something about the recommended text because I really don't know sort of in what sense they're recommended since your hands are going to be full reading the phenomenology of perception uh, and you're, you probably haven't got any more time and if you read it carefully and listen to me and go to your discussion sections, you should be able to understand it. But just because they are so relevant, I put down three recommended. The structure behavior is the book Merleau-Ponty wrote before and in conjunction with the phenomenology of perception. It's his, his minor thesis. And to get a PhD in those days, you had to write two theses. And so in the, the structure of behavior takes up uh, all, a lot of the sort of empirical data and goes through the stages from the sort of minimal organisms up to human beings and tries to show how at each stage they have a different structure of their relation to the environment. It's interesting. Sometimes it says things that are very relevant, but uh, unless you're sort of interest, particularly interested in that, you, you probably haven't, won't have time to read it. I'll cite it a, a bit when it comes to his discussion of the relation of empirical science to phenomenology because he, he's got to talk about that in that book and he does. Okay, 
So sense and nonsense, again, it's sort of ambiguous whether you should get it or not. On the one hand, it's got in at this article, which I think you should all read for sure, which is Cezanne's Doubt. I mentioned it last time. It's just a brilliant sort of encapsulation of what he thinks is what happens in perception, which you don't normally see, but a great painter uh, sees and puts it down on the canvas where you can see it if you got Merleau-Ponty as a guide. Well, I put Sense and Nonsense on reserve in the Howison Philosophy Library. I should mention that. That's the library on the second floor of Moses next to my office. I'm in 303. I don't know. The library doesn't have a number, does it? Anyway, even if it does, if you, get to, if you stand in front of my office, 303 Moses, the library is next to you on your right. And, and all the, I put all three of these books on reserve and the phenomenology of perception. And so the, there's not much else in sense and nonsense besides the Cezanne's Doubt, which was really helpful. There is one for those who are interested in film called The Film and the New Psychology. And that's helpful. It shows how thinking about gestalt psychology can help you understand the film. Uh, those are about the only two that you really need. But it's a very interesting book because it's Merleau-Ponty trying to write for an intelligent general audience instead of just who knows who's supposed to read these, this thesis. But it's, it's articles he wrote for the Tome Moderne, which he and Sartre founded uh, in about 43, I think. And, and, and these articles are all written brilliantly well and totally differently than the, the phenomenology of perception or the structure of behavior. He must, maybe he had some editor who went over it. Maybe Sartre fixed them. I don't know. But so it, if everything else being equal, it's nice to buy sense and nonsense. And to, but it's not just Xerox, the two articles that are in there that are important. Uh, Cezanne's Doubt and for some of you, the film one. Now the third one is different again. Sam Totus was a fellow graduate student of mine. He is absolutely brilliant. He is the stage after Merleau-Ponty. He, I, I talked about this last time, but I don't think I ever, don't remember whether I mentioned his name. But I mentioned it. I did. Okay. Yeah. He brings in the actual structure of the body, in trying, which is just a step, the next step after Merleau-Ponty. He does it in a book which is where it's surrounded by discussion of Kant and how you have, would have to write, rewrite Kant to take account of perception. And it's sort of a, it's, it's a, what Kant would be if Kant had read Merleau-Ponty. And that's interesting. When I put it over here, I put that the pages you really want to read, it's on the back of the syllabus, on, for week seven would be Totus 102 to 129. That's where he just does the phenomenology and doesn't mention Kant at all. And again, you can just Xerox that. I put it on reserve. Or, particularly if you're interested in how to relate this to Kant, you will find it fascinating because it amounts to saying, well, look, Kant had a story about conception and a conceptual, the level of, of our experience of the world, which is propositional and conceptual, but he didn't have an account of the preconceptual, perceptual way we're in the world, what would the critique of pure reason look like if he had? And that's what, that's what he's up to in the rest of the book. Okay, now I've told you about that. I, now I'm curious, got this far, how many would like to buy, I can, I can, now I can find out what to tell the bookstore. How many sitting people here want the structure of behavior and haven't got it? Okay, two, three, 
four, five, okay. And how many would like sense and nonsense and haven't got it? Let me write this down. I'll just tell them what to buy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. How many would like send Todus's body and world and haven't got it? One, two, three, four. Did I five, six, seven? I think I maybe did I miss people last time? Because I see. Let's try it once, just once more. Structure behavior. Put your hands up high. This is such a. I'm surrounded so much. One, two, three, four, five. Six. Six, seven, right? Eight. Oh, a big difference. And how about sense and nonsense? Let's try that again. Put your hands up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Okay, big difference there too. Okay, I'll try to get the bookstore to order a dozen of each of these and see what happens. Now, maybe everything is clear. Yeah. Is the website up? Ah, the website is up in a certain way. We should talk about that. It's got the syllabus on it and these the readings. It's got, it's got on it what you've got in your hands. Plus, and it's hard to keep up with the website, but I have got on it so far week one, the Charles Taylor paper, and the uh, I haven't got my primacy of perception paper and my introduction to sense and nonsense yet. Uh, oh, well, my introduction to sense and nonsense is not going to be on a website because it's published, but it's there. It's, it, it, it's maybe another reason for buying sense and nonsense, but it's a very general introduction, which I wrote I don't know, 40 years ago. It, 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 it covers up well how little I understood, I think, in rereading it, but I don't think it's all that illuminating. So, and, but the second week is already there, Taylor Carman's Sensation, Judgment, and the Phenomenal Field. That's a very good exposition of this first four chapters that we're reading, the, the section that, that is called, I, read, I, meant, I said it once, but I'll say it again, because you don't see it except here on this page called Introduction, oh, the, the whole thing on traditional prejudices and the return to the phenomena, which has got the sensation, association, and attention, and finally the part on the phenomenal field. That's, the stuff, that's what we're going to do all next week. That's a sizable chunk of the book. And we both, we all have to re-read it. I have to reread it, and you have to read it hard. Now, so that's, uh, but, but what's not going to be on the website, because of the general agreement uh, between me and the PAs, that it's not good to sort of seduce you into any easy way out, I'm not going to put these lectures on the website the way I sometimes put lectures or courses on the website. You really got to come and take part and pay attention and take notes and uh, I've got it all on recorded and in after the course I'll make it I'll put it on the website uh, and make a CD of it you can copy but that not you're not supposed to be leaning on that for this I think it's, it's a trade-off I mean some people would get a lot out of going back and listening to the lectures and it wouldn't keep them from coming <coughs> to class and it wouldn't keep them from sort of uh, not taking notes but some people too many people uh, well, we would use it as a crutch. So anyway, that's the story about the website. You'll find on it as quickly as possible all the stuff that's on the back of the syllabus that is in outside reading. That outside reading, I wouldn't put it on here if it weren't really useful. That is, it's supposed to actually give you some help in reading all this hard stuff. And uh, if you get time 
it pays to read it. However, if you haven't got time, just keep reading the phenomenology over and over. Anything else? Those people out there, I feel bad about that. There's no way to get them in. Hmm. Yeah. Is there material from the three later requisite uh, prerequisites that you would recommend that you could list on the website to for us to look at to sort of help us along as we go, or would that be? You mean in the, on the prerequisite? Well, I did that already. I think I understand you. I put what part of TOTUS you should be looking at. I put what part of of uh, sense and nonsense, namely <coughs> the the doubt, Cezanne's doubt, uh, and. I don't know what to tell you about what's in the structure of behavior. That's a challenge, but I, I haven't, and I can't. It's, it's sort of all over the place. It sort of touches up here and there. There's no sort of chapter the way there is in the other two. What I'm actually referring to is the Searle, Kant, and Heidegger that you have listed on the prerequisites. Ah, oh, I misunderstood you completely. What, what's the question? Uh, I mean, if there's places, it would be helpful, it seems like, to if there's places that we can look at to sort of use as supplementary readings as we go along to... I see. Yes, I can tell you. I can tell you. At least I can begin. Searle's book, Intentionality, is where he does perception and action, and thereby is in a head-on collision with Merleau-Ponty. Uh, that's what I write about a lot in this paper, The Primacy of, of uh, Phenomenology, which I'm going to get on the website. And uh, Kant, I have no idea what... What would you? God is just so hard. I can't think of any. Is there anything that we could tell people to read in Kant? The, the Critique of Pure Reason, right? <laughs> Take off a year and read the Critique of Pure Reason. It's the only advice I got for that one. And what else? Uh, and the history of modern. Well, you could uh, we could talk about that a minute. Somebody came in and told me they were reading Bertrand Russell on the history of modern. That's not a good idea. At least he doesn't understand it very well by general opinion, though he writes very well. Does anybody know of a good book on the history of modern that would help people who want to... Roger uh, Scruton. What's that? Roger Scruton. Really? Yeah. Roger Scruton, what's it called? Uh, history of Modern Philosophy. History of Modern Philosophy. Okay. So, uh, that's... Now, that's, that's, those are the prerequisites, aren't they? 25... I just did 25B, Roger Scruton. I've done 132, Searle. I give up on Kant. Uh, I don't think there's any way to talk about anything they should read that would get them what they would have had if they went to a perception course. That seems a bit hard to say. Okay. Uh, and being in time, well, that's a whole world in itself. I mean, if you had to read something for being in time, I guess you should read my commentary on being in time, in which I try to put being in time in just the right relation to Merleau-Ponty, you might say, that is, as the first attempt to get rid of this distinction between subject and object and explain us as being in the world, that he's, that that's the big influence on Merleau-Ponty. And, so, okay, that was a good question. That's, that's the best I can do for an answer. Now, I think we're ready to go into the complications of the text. Okay, first, let's talk about the structure of the argument overall. What's going on in these first four chapters? Well, he says, philosophers have traditionally tried to understand perception as the reconstruction of the objective world based on sensations caused by input to the sense organs. And that's the view that he wants to attack. Uh, the, the, the idea that there is something of a sensation which is between some intermediary between the object as described by science 
and the prior, the subjective experience that that's how that the sensation turns out to be how the impact of the universe, so to speak, on the or, on, on the organism gets picked up and is experienced as a sensation, which then the mind has to work on to give us reconstruct the world of objects. That's how it looks to scientists. That's how it looks to neuroscientists. But he thinks that's wrong. Uh, the sen- the, the, we're going to say this over and over in various ways, but the sensation as this sort of meaningless atomic impression, to use Hume's terms, isn't, there is no such thing, and even if there were, there'd be no way to get from there to experience of objects. Yeah, the, the argument is sort of like the, the legal argument when, when somebody is accusing somebody of having broken a pot, but borrowed and broken a pot. But you can argue in the law, one, uh, uh, the person who's accused says, I never borrowed the pot, and besides, when I gave it back, it wasn't broken. Uh, the, it's sort of Merrill Plenty is saying, well, there are no such things as sensations, but even if there were, they wouldn't do any job, they wouldn't do the job you expect them to do. So he's sort of overkill, in a sense, in, 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 in this two-part argument. So the first chapter is the argument that there isn't any such basic unit as a sensation. There's no ground for such an assumption. The reason we think there is, according to him, where, where, where's the, where, and this impression is supposed to be determinate, <coughs> isolable, and uh, it makes up the elements out of which somehow you construct the whole of perception. And he thinks that it's only because people assume that our experience of objects is like the object of experience that we get this idea. The object of experience, this, is determinate, roughly isolable, and you can take the lectern and put it in any other context you please, it'll still be looking like an lectern. And it has, in the Cartesian jargon he likes to take up, parts outside of parts. That it's, it's made up, it's, an ele- it's a s- separate thing, and then you could take it apart into lots of separate elements at lots of s- different stages. That's how the world is. The objects in the world, or the objects in the universe, both. I mean, the objects in the universe are made out of electrons. The objects in the world are things like the lectern, but in both cases it seems that you could isolate them from their context and get the bare impression. That's, and uh, he thinks that's wrong. The whole introduction is trying to argue, well the whole first chapter, that there aren't any sensations and the, the rest of the introduction is supposed to tell you why if there were, you, it wouldn't do you any good anyway. Uh, so I'm going to <coughs> read you things I'm going to read you lots because I'm just, it's almost when I started looking at this and rereading it, I realized that I, I sort of wanted to cite every sentence. Uh, and so let's start on page three. He's describing this impression and how it's, uh, so there's this pure sensation at the bottom of three. Sure. Yeah. Could you please give uh, the first sentence of the paragraph? Ah, I see. Okay, right. Well, I might as well just give the... I guess I could give both the pages. Well, no, I'll give the first sentence. That's fine. This sentence, this paragraph begins, I might in the first place. 
and then skipping down and then maybe I, I'll read something I didn't it's just an example of a little moment of not Merleau-Ponty he's describing the sensation and uh, he keeps saying I might in the first paragraph I might in the first place understand by sensation but he doesn't and then he goes on a little further I might have said to have a sense experience is to coincide with what's sensed and the important thing is that this impression signifies nothing for me yeah he might have said those things that would be the right things to say about <coughs> sensations if there were any sensations but since he doesn't think they are he wouldn't say that it's a funny way for him to put it um, so the bottom of page three which is still that same paragraph he says pure sensation will be the experience of an undifferentiated instantaneous dot-like impact well that's what maybe people that's what people who believe in sensations believe but that's not what he believes um, and if it were we'd have to add something to get from there to a meaningful experience of objects which is very complicated but just for the for minimal had there can we would get to intentionality where we experience something as having various aspects and having our mind we could have our minds directed toward it all of that requires a whole lot if, if all you've got is a bare point like meaningless impact to start out with but then this is this overkill he's because the tradition is the way it is he's got to deal with a whole the whole history of philosophy since Descartes was devoted to showing how you could get from these meaningless minimal atomic impressions to an experience of a world with objects so chapter two is a critique of empiricism and empiricism is the, is Hume in effect and it says well you what are you what are you going to add to these to an impression to make it about something well lots more impressions so if I get an impression of something that looks like a, a front of a house if, to get the experience of a house you've got to associate that with the experience of the back and the sides and everything I'm going to, I'm going to erase this because I, I, I made a sort of list okay that he's, he's got always, and this is why I'm going to give you this list, in mind, a kind of way of, he's got, he has a way of arguing, which is always to say, well, the empiricist says such and such, and that means, I'll, tell, I'll say it now, and I'll write it on the board in a minute, that means Hume and Locke, mainly, have a way of trying to explain, analogous to the way science explains, how we get from impressions to experience of objects. So Hume said, well, I'm going to do in my treatise what Newton did for physics. I'm going to do for the mind. I'm going to give you a causal account of how a meaningless impression gets associated according to some laws of association so that you get an experience of objects. And that tradition, which I'll, I'll write this up here. Well, I, I, there's one place where he says early on that I won't go look at it in the preface that he's not doing explaining and he's not doing analyzing but he's doing describing and, and 
explaining and analyzing, I think, are his names for these two wrong approaches, which won't work. Empiricist, and that gives you human lock, and gives you causal account. I'm not good at writing things. Can you, can you read that from way back there? Probably not. Can you? Almost. Oh, that's good. I'm trying hard. So, and they want, uh, probably I should have put it here. I'll put it up here. Um, they, this is where you get a meaningless impression to start with. I can put that in there somewhere. Uh, impression. I put it up there because, after all, then you get a causal account of, uh, and you get the laws. So I'm going to put this down here. Uh, so these guys had this idea that there were meaningless impressions, and then they had a causal account giving you the laws of association. And as long as we got this whole picture on the board, I'll try to get out of the way, uh, then we want to know, and if this is at all, at all of interest to us, well, there must be some contemporary version of it, people who still believe that in some way. Well, the, the main people that were at, at Merleau-Ponty's time were the behavior, would be behaviorists, or if it's not his time, it's where behaviorists, it's where Merleau-Ponty connects up with us, is that behaviorism also is trying to treat the mind like physics find the laws of association and reinforcement by which you get from their impressions. And that's interesting because Charles Taylor's first book, The Explanation of Behavior, which nobody reads anymore <coughs> because it did such a good job, it destroyed behaviorism. It didn't get the credit for destroying behaviorism because at the very same time Chomsky destroyed behaviorism and got more publicity. But in any case, what Charles Taylor did was just read Merleau-Ponty, translate it all into analytic, turn it, turn it against Skinner and show that it was in the project for Skinner and behaviorists were incoherent. And he did it without having to assume a lot of the things that Chomsky... Well, no, Chomsky is criticized Skinner's of verbal behavior and showed that, that that the phenomena was such that Skinner's way of dealing with it missed it. And I think Taylor's saying the same thing. So there you've got, I'll just read it for those of you way out there who can't see it. So this is the column called explaining. The people who do it are empiricists. Hume and Locke are the main ones. They believe that we start with meaningless impressions. Then they want to give a causal account of how we get from there to experience of objects. They do it by telling us about the laws of association. And nowadays it's empiric, it's behaviorist. Or really nowadays, in some way, I think it's neural net people. I, I like neural nets and I think probably it's unfair to say that people who are going to do neural nets and reinforcement learning are just behaviorists. People like Fodor say that. But for the sake of this rough rough uh, taxonomy, we can say so. It's an interesting issue, not for this course, to try to figure out whether, the, see, in a way in psychology this thing just keeps repeating itself. The behaviorists come and then their story doesn't work, so these other people, which who are the intellectualists, come around and, and they are good, they're the Kant and followers, 
they say, well, you can't do this with these causal laws, but the mind has to do something to get from the impressions to objects. So what you do is you have a story about a judgment and subsuming uh, these impressions under categories and, and finding their rule-like relations. Instead of, let's start here now. It's, they, they got the meaningless impressions. Let's put that up here. Some kind of impression. Some kind of giving. And then they're going to say that to, what you have to do is you find uh, you have to how do I what do I want next? Instead of a causal account, you get a rule rules, symbolic representation. This should begin to sound be sounding familiar. That is with this jumping to the bottom line, this is cognitivism now. And it was artificial intelligence till it died. At, I mean, that, that symbolic representation died as a form of artificial, as a way to make computers intelligent. But it's still something that is a going business, cognitivism. And it, it, it's got, uh, what else do I need? Uh, I guess that's about it. Yeah. Uh, did I see a hand? Can you, I'll read this now for you guys out there. Uh, I'm really worried about these people out there. You don't, you, can you hear me out there? Yeah. Oh, well, good. I'll just read it. So I wrote analyzing. Analyzing means sort of trying to find the rules or the, prin well, not principles, the, yeah, in, in, in Kant it mounts to saying sort of what is the mental contribution. See, analyzing is uh, as in the uh, <coughs> transcendental analytic. You try to, in Kant, you try to find out what the contribution of the mind has to be to get from whatever the given input is to objects. So you, in, under analyzing, this is what Merleau-Ponty calls the intellectualists. And it's Kant and a whole lot of people that he talks a lot about who are French neo-Kantians, whom you'll never have heard of. I don't, La Chesray is one of them, I can't remember, uh, because I never pay any attention since we never read them. But anyway, Kant and all of his French followers, um, whatever, they, they start with something too that's some kind of given that is meaningless. They don't call it impressions, but it, I, whatever they call it, I mean, I think they sometimes just call it the given. Uh, and then they're going to try to find the mental machinery that gets you from this meaningless given to the experience of objects. And cognitivism and AI is part of it. The, my teacher, C.I. Lewis, whom you don't read anymore, was one of these neo-Kantians who tried to explain how the uh, perceptual given together with some whole conceptual machinery enables you to have the experience of, an o of objects. And that, so that's the other project. And Merleau-Ponty wants to say that neither the empiricist or the intellectualist can account for perception. And his argument goes, uh, it, it, sort of, and the history of psychology goes, sort of like what Kant calls an antinomy. 
Each side tries to give their story. It shows it finally doesn't work. We've just lived through this interesting one 50 years ago now, where finally Skinner's behaviorism doesn't work. Chomsky comes along and destroys it and says, well, the only other possibility is we're applying all these rules to, uh, he's doing it in language, and then after a while that doesn't work. It's got so patched up with, with ad hoc attempts to save it that people stop believing it, and they go back to the other side again. And that flip-flop in, in is what Merleau-Ponty makes into an argument and as an argument, an antinomy says, well, there are only two possibilities, and if this one doesn't work, it must be the other one, and then that one doesn't work, and it says it must be that one, and the way out of an antinomy is to say, well, these aren't the only two possibilities. In Merleau-Ponty, that means, well, let's say we don't start with these meaningless given sensations, since every time anybody tries to get from there to the meaningful world of objects, they can't do it. And that, so his argument is always doing that showing that neither the empiricists, first it's always the empiricists can't do it, then it's the intellectualists can't do it, and he always looks more like the intellectualist. He has much, he has much less sympathy for the empiricist, behaviorist, <coughs> British version than he does for the neo-Kantian, intellectualist, rationalist, French version. After all, they're in the big line of Descartes, uh, Leibniz, Kant, and not in the line of Hume and Locke, but they can't do it either. And then saying, all we can do is give a description of what's going on, and that always turns out to be a gestaltist story about, and this is also very important, it turns out to be a story that says always, well, the amazing thing about human experience is that the whole is prior to the parts. That is, that there, you, what's wrong with both these views is that they're at atomistic, they're trying to build up experience out of elements. You can't do that. The way the brain works, and we don't know how the brain works, but however it works, we have an experience of the whole from the start, the world and us in it. And we don't have an experience of these elements except insofar as we use some special analytic a attitude to break down this whole into elements. Or something goes wrong and it just breaks down. Or we have brain injuries and then you get elements. There's a kind of brain injury where you get to be a Kantian, where you have to, <laughs> where you have to figure out, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oliver Sacks writes about it in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, who has to figure out what a glove is by saying, well, it's got five out poachings and it's got this and that, and then he deduces that it's a glove. Uh, I mean, that, and, and everything this guy does, he has to deduce. If you show him a triangle, he says, well, it's got this side and that side and that side, and it's closed. It's a closed figure. It's a triangle. Whereas the, the argument's supposed to be for Merleau-Ponty, you can see from this breakdown, that's not how we do it. We see a triangle first, and then we see these lines as composing it. So, so the general argument always is that there's some third thing that is, comes out of this holism. For instance, if you read later, you'll read, if you read Mark Rathall's uh, paper, which is, uh, what's the title? Uh, Motives, Reasons, and Causes, you can see you've got causes <coughs> over here. Where do we put causes? Causes. We put reasons over here. I put rules. So he gives you all story about uh, trying to have a causal account of perception, trying to have a rationalist 
uh, rule account, and then he Merleau-Ponty introduces this descriptive, weird notion of what he calls a motive, which isn't like a, a motive of well, you know, you, did you have a motive when you killed him? Kind of motive. What a motive is is a tendency in experience to organize so as to produce better and better gestalts. We'll have a lot to say about that, lots to say about that later, but that's supposed to be an example of how you sort of break the antinomy by coming in with your whole Gestalt story and then having an account of each of these uh, uh, opposed views by introducing some third thing. Motive is very obscure. It's very hard to know what he's talking about. It's, we don't, it, doesn't, it isn't part of our normal vocabulary, common sense or scientific. And his view is, you've got to have a whole new version. If you stick to description, you're going to need a whole new vocabulary because common sense and science are equally wrong because they don't understand the Gestalt story, because they think that experience and the, the physical universe and the everyday world can all be broken down into elements and built up out of the elements, and that's just wrong uh, from, from the story we're going to tell. Uh, yeah? When you reference gestalt, what does that mean? Oh boy, that's perfectly sensible to ask that. That's a ground floor question we better be dealing with. You'll notice that he's that you, you could have asked it right away because you can always ask about the reading. And when he says, notice right in the middle of page four, which is that huge paragraph that doesn't help much, you know. <laughs> it begins, I might. But anyway, in the middle of page four, he says, when Gestalt's, I'll, it's perfect to read that right now. And I'm, I'm answering you as I read it, uh, as soon as I read it. When Gestalt's theory informs us that a figure on the background is the simplest sense-giving available to us, that's, that's Gestalt, then we, this is Merleau-Ponty, reply that this isn't a contingent characteristic of factual perception, which leaves us free in an ideal analysis to bring in the notion of impressions. Those would be the elements. It is the very definition of the phenomenon of perception without, without that, without which a phenomenon cannot be said to be perception at all. The perceptual something is always in the middle of something else. It always forms part of a field. Okay, the Gestalt psychologists were writing in, what, the early 1900s, I think. Uh, that's right, isn't it, I guess. And they are, their names, I won't write them on the board, but their famous ones are Kafka, I think it's K-O-F-F-K-A. You, well, you'll find them in the footnotes. He refers to them a lot. Kafka, Wertheimer, uh, those are the main two. Uh, and they are the ones who introduced this idea that Gestalt, which is their name for this whole that I was talking about. Gestalt means form, that, but it doesn't mean platonic kind of form. It means that there's always some whole in, uh, of which whatever, uh, more basic than the elements. Let me explain some more about that, because there's this deep misunderstanding around, I think, that people say all the time, you read in books, that the Gestalt has said that the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. That's, they probably did say that, but that's a trivial thing to say. They wouldn't have gotten very far. Because, I mean, that's obviously true, even of a brick wall. The brick wall is certainly more than the sum of all the bricks in it. But that's not what they're trying to say. They're trying to say something much stronger, that the whole determines what counts as a part. 
Because if you had the brick wall, you could have sensations. I mean, the brick wall, every brick is like a sensation, and then you give us the rule for putting it together as a wall. That's not what they think. That's what they think is wrong. And their kind of example is that a melody, and they claim that the same note, let's say C, middle C, which uh, is the same in the sense that you get the same frequency, and if you hear that frequency alone, you hear every time you hear it, it sounds the same. That same note will sound different in different melodies. It gets a, a certain quality from being in a certain place in the whole. I wish I could think of more. I mean, it's so, it's so pervasive what they're saying, but that's the only example they keep saying. Let me see if I know any others. That's, it's, uh, An example with words, like right oh yeah that's right that's good yes that's another example they have you can do what is it cat and cat no it isn't cat it has to be like the letters the letters right right what's it let's see if we can write one on the board what are they the hat and something well but the trouble is it cat can't be right can it uh, because it just won't work. Well, go try it. What about the duck rabbit Ah, the duck rabbit drawing is terrific. They're all full of good examples. I don't know why I couldn't have thought of them. I was stuck in the, in the chapter all morning. I guess you could write like cat and cat and then the looks like He's going to tell us how to do it. Okay, and now what happened? Well, if you... Now it's the... Uh-huh. Okay, good. So the, the gestalt, the overall, whatever, determines the meaning of or what counts as or how we <coughs> see, well, how, what we see to be the supposed elements. Oh, I just remembered another one. There's so many when you think of, there's something called the word superiority <coughs> effect, which I don't know what people do with, but in the old days it was a big problem for cognitive. <laughs> it, turns, it turns out that if, oh yeah, I was going to ask about that one next, but let me, while I think of this one, it turns out to be the case that you can recognize a word faster than you can recognize letters in the word, which suggests that the way your mind works is you grasp the gestalt, it's just uh, more of this same story, you grasp that before you grasp the letters in it, we just showed that, or, or the duck rabbit, as somebody here said rightly, well, if this is a duck looking that way, when we draw it, there should be something that's the eye of the duck. Yeah, one, what? Okay, yeah, there's a rabbit and it looks that way. Okay, I know that. But you, as, as the way I remember it, the little dot which is the eye of the rabbit is not also the eye of the duck. Two different spots do the same job depending on where it is. Now we need a duck rabbit. What you need in a duck rabbit is not only, you can do two things with it. You can say, look, it's an ambiguous figure. You can see it two ways and which way you see it will depend on what you've got surrounding it and so, or what you expect. But there is another thing that you see about it. I always see when I see the drawings of it is the gestalt point that what looks like a black spot in one is the eye of the other. Uh, one or and all of these ambiguous figures, of course, like the woman who's a 
an old lady or a girl and so forth, everything switches. What looks like her, her nose in one is her scarf in another. And th those are all gestalt so things. So is this what he was referring to in this? No, well, that's the Muller-Lyer illusion. That's, that's another gestalt phenomena that he talks about. The, the, those lines at the bottom of where are you? What page are you on? Six. Six. Where the overall thing, which is getting those two things on the end of these two, those two lines are equal. It's hard to believe. But if you measure them, they better turn out to be. But uh, what counts as the length of the line is determined by the overall gestalt. And so you switch the length of the line by putting the ends on there. Anyway, so the gestaltists, this is all worth going through, were just spending their time doing marvelous experiments to show that the whole determines what counts as a part, that we always see things first in terms of holes, and then working that out in every direction. And you'll find them their work coming up again and again and again in, the, in this book because they were doing the, the phenomenology of, of perception and, and resisting the, the both, both the empiricist and the uh, intellectualist uh, versions of perception. They were way ahead of their time in a way because they thought there must be fields in the brain that corresponded to these holes. And now there are lots of brain models of, uh, say, uh, attractors and so forth where there are holes, where there don't seem to be holistic phenomena in the brain correlated with perception. It's an interesting story. I can't go into it too much. The Gestaltists went and tried to find in the brain these holes, and they, they just didn't have the equipment, and they couldn't find it. And that was used so much against them that they just disappeared. I mean, they dropped out. Curler uh, was teaching at Swarthmore, which is a pretty good place to be, but given that he was sort of a genius of a whole new movement, it, it just was, wasn't where he should have been. And by the way, Totus was a protege of Curler, so this sort of comes together in a way. Curler was an undergraduate at Swarthmore, and so when he read Merleau-Ponty, it always seemed just perfectly obvious and clear to him and which was Merleau-Ponty and which wasn't. It was very helpful to have him as a fellow graduate student. Okay, back to this. Uh, any more comments on that? Uh, yeah. You said something earlier about uh, impressions. About? About impressions. And, yeah, uh, right. And yeah, sex. right. I'm wondering, do you think that that according to well, I think he thinks you can get them. Uh, I think he thinks there are two places where he seems to talk about what it would be to get them. One is the sort of funny thing at the beginning of the book where he asks himself, well, what would it be like to have an impression? And he says, in effect, it would be like waking up in the morning before you've got any wits at all. Where is that? It's, it's right at the beginning of what we're reading, I believe. Uh, uh, Well, I'm looking on page four, and he, just, and he says how the pure impression is therefore not only undiscoverable, but also imperceptible and so inconceivable ah. as an instant perception. Okay, so, so good, like, good. I'm, I'm not sure if he really wants to make this really strong claim. Yeah, that I the think... perception is always within a hole, even in the breakdown cases. Okay, I th I'll let me say something about that. But here, by the way, is this bit the, where he talks about uh, the, the sounds that encroach on my drowsiness. They're in my head and when I close my eyes. And so he, he tries there to say what would become close to being an impression. It would have to be just something so meaningless that it wasn't even in the world. It was just a state of me. 
That's one example. The other one in the doubt of Cezanne, he seems to think that painters, after much effort, can see impressions. And his big example is the cathedral at Rouen, painted by Monet at various times of day. I mentioned that, where he can see just the color patches. We've got to get on to color patches pretty soon. But one version of impressions would be sheer uh, color qualities, which don't get affected by the whole. I mean, the whole point of these pictures of the Rouen Cathedral is supposed to be that Monet is managing to paint the various colors from sort of purple to orange to yellow and so forth and how they change as the lighting changes as if they were meaningless and isolable color impressions. So I think, let me say, well, I'm gonna, I'll let you talk in a minute. I think that there are two stories going on at once. I was puzzled by this. There's one which is the Hegelian story, and that is the very notion of an impression is inconceivable. That's, what, uh, that's how Hegel begins the phenomenology of mind. And that says, if you take the, the notion of impression absolutely seriously, so that it isn't meaningful at all, it isn't even categorizable, it can't even be a red patch here now, Hegel says already, look at this, you're using the word red, you're relating it to other red, red patches and so forth. That's not a pure impression. A pure impression, you just have to go, ah. Uh, and then, and you, so, so Hegel says, there is no pure impression. But Merleau-Ponty is much more interested, although he makes that move in here, that there's no such thing. He's really interested in the, the, what the impressionists thought they were talking about, which was something like a red patch here and now, and that is supposed to be the minimal stuff of the experience. And then, and then he thinks that you can break down your experience and actually have sense impressions. And, he, and he's got all kinds of evidence for that, from, from brain-injured people to uh, great painters. But he thinks that that only comes when you will get really analytically skilled at undermining the, the gestalt the hole in which it appears. Never mind the Hegelian one. I mean, that's not interesting to us. And I don't know why he's bothering to tell us that the, that the really pure, absolutely meaningless, absolutely uh, uh, uninterpreted given doesn't exist. That's not what he's concerned to argue. He's concerned to argue that the impressions of the, of the uh, uh, empiricists don't exist. Uh, well, no, that's not, no, wait, wait, the, not quite. He's arguing that the impressions of the empiricists don't normally take, be, are, are not normally a part of our experience, but they do exist in the sense that if you get in a certain attitude, you can get something like an impression. Introspectionists were supposed to be doing that all along. They were able to study what their experience was like when they didn't see it in a context, didn't interpret it, and so forth. You, you look worried. Yeah, because I'm thinking maybe an alternative explanation that you might be giving, and I'm not really sure, is that we're re -gestalting. So like the breakdown cases and the pain cases would still be a, an example of gestalt principles at work. I don't think that's what he means. No, I no. He because in the Muller liar illusion and so and so forth, he says you can isolate it from the ends. If you get really skilled, so you could see that illusion without the ends, mm -hmm. you'd see that the two lines were the same. That means there really is, so to speak, an impression there. There really is. Uh, 
Uh, well, they, oh, oh, boy, that's the wrong thing to say. You've got to be careful. Wait, I, a dilemma, I think. No, no, not a dilemma, but something very important, like, which is jumping ahead, but we better say it now. I mean, if you can break down your experience into impressions, does that show the impressions were there all along? It helps you to look ahead. That's the issue of the chapter on attention. That's the next chapter after the one on... Well, first we get the sensation chapter, which we're talking about. Then we get the association chapter, which is how the empiricist tries to get objects back from sensations by way of association. Then we get the attention chapter. The attention chapter says, well, look, these, I'm making it simple in, in connection with what I just said. Well, look, these impressionists can break down their experience into impressions. And they were what was there all along. That's the crucial move. Our, we, if we really get good at paying attention, as these artists are, and these introspectionist psychologists are, we discover impressions, and we discover them. That's the sensory core theory, he calls it. Uh, that's the theory that we, we, we can break down the gestalt and find the impressions that are there. Now, there are two parts to that. One, that we can break down the gestalt, and I think he thinks we can. But after all, the painters and impressionists did it. And then that, that reveals what was there all along. Oh, I think he calls it, I, the sensory core theory is what people called it when I was a graduate student. He calls it the uh, exposure hypothesis, right? Does that sound familiar? The exposure hypothesis, same thing. The exposure hypothesis says you revealed what was there all along. He says, one, there's no evidence for that. Why should we believe that? And two, if we, had, if we did believe it, we'd be right back at, at, at his arguments in chapter one that you couldn't figure out how to get from there to the, the hole, which you have destroyed brilliantly. And that's because the, the hole was never made out of these elements. Yeah? I'm confused when, when you say that they were there all along. It seems like at that point people were talking about them as if they're actual existing objects in the world. Uh, they That's how we think of objects in the world that we're not perceiving them that they're there. But when we're talking about gestalt psychology and the way that we can see objects um, and looking at their forms instead of you know their details or the you know elements that make them up, we were talking about our perception and the way that we're perceiving them. Yes. But, 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 and you, well, we should wait till we get to the attention chapter. The argument's supposed to be they were there all along, but we weren't paying sufficient, clear, analytic attention. It's, we, we had this sort of confused gestalt experience. I mean, it's, though no gestaltist is going to buy this, but there's certainly something you can say if you can break it down into these elements. What, why shouldn't we think that it was made up of these elements? And the gestaltist is going to say, you've got none of that in your experience. And the attention person is going to say, well, not in your everyday, not, not paying attention, coping with objects kind of experience. But you've got it there in, on, on the margin of your experience. Well, how do we know that? Well, because by paying attention, you will see it. And the, and the model of attention is a kind of spotlight, which you shine on this and discover it was there all along. So he's got to change your whole view of what attention is so that he can argue that you, if that's in, there is no such thing as that kind of attention where you just uh, uh, discover that something or other which you didn't have in your normal everyday experience was there all along. There is something like that. There is paying more attention to the details of, the, of your experience. 
but not. Uh, well, do I'm saying you could have this. Wait a minute. So that you could have. No, I, I misspoke. It's not that there never could be such an, uh, a breakdown. It's just that he wants to argue it's a breakdown. You, there is you can, there is no good argument that it was dimly in your experience, which is what you are. When you want to say, why should we phenomenologists and Gestaltists think that this was dimly there all along? Well, there's an assumption about what attention is, namely that it brings out what is there all along. And it's true, since it's true that you can, by attention, isolate these elements, if you also believe that attention is what brings out what was there all along, then of course you're, you're where you want to be. Or not you want to be, but the anti-Gestaltist wants to be. But yeah? That's right. That's right. It seems like by saying that they were there all along, it's projecting kind of the way that we think about objects in the world as existing in the world. And we're not talking about ah. our actual sensations, our at all. You said that, but I don't think that's right. I mean, I was sort of disagreeing with that. I mean, that's true, but the issue isn't whether they were there in the world all along, but whether they were there in your experience all along. And that's what I was answering. Now, there were people, Bertrand Russell at a certain stage, thought that there were sense data in the world all along. And that we, that's what we really experienced uh, because they were out there. But you don't have to hold that. Uh, that's a really weird view. I gather Russell gave it up. But anyway, so all you really need to be, in a, to be on the column over here of empiricism is to claim that in your experience there is data which is not produced by the whole, but which is what makes, which can be put together to make up the result whole. If that doesn't make you happy, come talk to me more. You look a little puzzled. Yeah. Uh, can you be totally explicit about uh, what an impression is? Well, it, it covers too many things. That's a good question. I mean, if you that's what came up with uh, 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 Rick's question. I mean, if, if you think an impression is just the absolute minimum of total meaninglessness and uncategorized, then you go in the Hegel direction and you get that becomes an unintelligible huh, and you can't say anything about it because as soon as you say anything about it, you already categorize it. Charles Taylor does a great version of that in his Hegel book, and how that's one way. But then, but it, you can also think that an impression is any perceptual experience which has a determinate character and is independent of any context. And that's what the impressionist is trying to do in making their painting, or what the Gestaltists—they're trying to isolate this experience from the context. And what's left is the impression. And it, it's further complicated, just so you know, by this epistemological issue, because the sense data stuff is supposed to be indubitable. That was the big deal when I was a graduate student. C.I. Lewis thought that you've got to have something called the given as the rock bottom of knowledge. goes back to Descartes. Uh, and so you get two things when you do this. You discover, you, you have to, so they were busy, the sense data people, trying to get back to these impressions because they were the basis of knowledge. But there are also these psychological types who don't care about <coughs> building their knowledge on un indubitable impressions, but they want to know how the impressions get put together to give us an experience of objects. And that's, but that's the same impressions, I think, that they're just using in two different ways. There's an epistemological story and then there's a, uh, what? Uh, 
philosophical story of how to explain how we get there's the Hume issue and the Kant issue, how we get an experience of a whole with whole objects in it, given that what we start with are these context-free impressions. You had a hand up? Yeah. Don't think like the Gonsfield experiments kind of show that the equivalent of creating or trying to create pure sensation or pure impression is simply not to perceive. Hmm. You mean, what's, tell me more. I think somebody mean? put the goggles over somebody's eyes or the equivalent of those kind of working Oh, okay, yeah. And they create a, essentially oh, I see, a constant yeah. impression. Right. Yeah. The, the consequence seems to be that you, you simply stop seeing okay. or you simply stop hearing. That's, that's fine, but that's that sort of the Hegel thing. If an impression were sort of so <coughs> undifferentiated that it didn't even have any color or any shape, that's what you can't get. And if you give people a world in which there is this thing like when you're waking up in which there is no, no, nothing, uh, just a sort of fog, they don't see anything. That's the point. But remember that the impression, again, it's sort of like his point. The, the Humean impression, just keep telling yourself, is something like red patch here now. That is, it's context-free, it's completely determinate, but that doesn't mean that it has to have no color and can't be, because it's true that if it has a color, you seem to be already saying something more about it than, than, than is minimal. But they were willing to say something more about it than was minimal. All they cared about is that it was context-free and determinate. Did I have any other thing on my little list when I read it? If so, it's time to go back to it. Just a second. Uh, hmm. I don't want to lose the opportunity to connect up with one thing I already said. Uh, what happened to page one? Isolable. Isolable. Oh, that's just context-free. Good. Okay. Yeah, that's all I said. Uh, now, so I, would, I better go back to this for a while because I, I, I wanted to go slowly, but not that slowly. <laughs> I'm on page two, uh, and I wanted. <laughs> So we, I'm still, there's something like a page missing. I don't know where that went. So I've done, you know, I just, you know, I want my page. I don't feel happy. Well, I want to, um, okay, I, I guess it's here. I see, yeah, now I see. <coughs> I don't know what happened to page one, but I don't need it. Uh, so we've got the critique of empiricism. I'm giving you the overall plan of the book, and there we are. And so they share this common assumption about the world. There's page one. Thanks very much. That doesn't need it, except it reassures me that reality is in place. Okay, so now, in Merleau-Ponty in chapter four, I was just running over the whole layout. In chapter four, Merleau-Ponty is going to propose instead his view which you could call existential phenomenology, that our experience of the world and of objects is field-like from the always normal experience. I think when you hear me say experience, you always, always I want to say normal, because after all, there are these introspectionists and these brain-injured people and these uh, artists who can have these impressions, not the absolute minimal kind, but the kind that the, uh, the humans would be happy with. But normally, we experience a, what he calls a phenomenal field, which is correlative with 
our body. Our body is going to turn out to be the sort of most basic holism. And the way the body is holistic sort of rubs off on everything else in experience. And the way the body uh, uh, organizes. The body organizes this phenomenal field from the, from the biggest to more and more restricted fields. TOTUS is very good on that, about various fields, vertical, horizontal, and so forth, that the body organizes. Okay, now, just believe it or not, I got to the sensation chapter, which is what I was going to talk about today. So let's see if I can skim this, what I want to make sure we get across. So another way I wrote it here is we wanted the, the sensations are supposed to be the raw material out of which the, the world is put together. And uh, we assume there are such things because we think that we, uh, we read back our experience of objects. This is where I was a long time ago. And that gets us to this important story about Gestalt, which is where we were thanks to this question. And I want to read you on page four, even if we never get past page four. I want to, he describes a Gestalt phenomena right before he gets to what I read last time. He says, think of what you might think of as a simple impression. Uh, I'm now reading about five lines down on page four, which is still in that one huge paragraph. Uh, now he says, um, let us imagine a white patch on a homogeneous background. Well, there's a simple impression you would think if ever you had one. But he, then he gives you a gestalt analysis of it. All the points in the patch have a certain function in common, that of forming themselves into a shape. That's like to say that the sides of a triangle don't just look like lines, they look like sides of triangles. It's like the way the notes look in the music or sound. The color of the shape is more intense and as it were more resistant than that of the background. The edges of the patch belong to it, like the sides of the triangle, and are not part of the background, although they adjoin it. The patch appears to be placed on the background and does not break it up. That is, you experience the background is going on under this white patch, not as if this white patch were a hole in, the, in a black background. He's telling you all that is already involved in this very minimal uh, supposed in perception. It's already holistic. It's the hole is defining the edges. The hole is affecting the color. The hole is selecting the spot out against the background. And then he says, what I read before, there's always a figure on a background, which is a, a, a further gestaltist point. Now something crossed my mind as I was saying, I was thinking this, namely that I wanted to make sure that I told you for the next uh, four minutes or five minutes, I want to tell you about some important mistranslations that may have messed you up when you tried to read this. Right after what I just read, where it says field, it says, uh, a really homogeneous area offering nothing to be cannot be given to any perception. It says offering nothing to see in the French. And this is amazing. This has been through, I don't know, 30 printings and they haven't just simply corrected that. You see where we are? Okay, where it says the Schall theory informs us stuff about the field. That's right after where I was reading about it. Right after the stuff about the point. Then there's the Gestalt, the sentence when Gestalt theory informs us. That's still in that big paragraph. Mm -hmm. Finish that whole thing up to field. 
You got that? Yeah. Yes. Now the next sentence, a really homogeneous area offering nothing to be cannot be given to any perception. That's nonsense. It's offering nothing to see. And while I'm at it, let's go back to the thing I just read. It's full of bad translations. So I'm back to each part arouses the expectation of more. Meloponti in French says announces more. That's a kind of, obviously, metaphor. But what, he, what we should avoid is expectation, because expectation is much too intellectual and mental. I mean, uh, it, it isn't as if each part in this little patch he's describing leads us to expect the background underneath and expect the edge and so forth. It's, it's I want to say something like each part arouses a readiness for more. That is, when you see any part of it, you're already getting ready to, 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 to see other aspects of it. And now let me go on. More than it contains, and this elementary perception is therefore already charged with a meaning. Again, too intellectual. Mean, I mean, in French it's sens, S-E-N-S. Sens is a very, very much more general word. And so you should put there sense. We have a word like that in English. Every, it's charged with sense, meaning that it points beyond itself. So the edges point to the figure, and the figure uh, points beyond itself to the background that's being covered up. Okay, one, two more, and I'll stop. That whole sentence is messed up. So charged with meaning. But if the shape and the background, say figure and background, it's just common gestalt talk, they never say shape, they always say figure. Figure is correlative with background. There's always a figure on a ground, and any ground has a figure. They're, they're interdefined, where shape is just, could be out of context. Okay, and, and now let's go on. But if the figure and the background as a whole are not sensed, uh, they must, uh, this is a weird sense. I couldn't fake this out for a long time, are not sensed, they must, let's see, they must be sensed uh, how what are not since I can't even read it now. Let me try again. Each part arouses blah 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 blah. Uh, but if the figure and the background as a whole are not sensed, uh, they must be sensed. One may object in each of their points. That's um, if you write instead of whole collection, that makes sense. The French is ensemble, and it says. If the figure in the background as a ensemble, as a collection, aren't sensed, they must be sensed, one may object, in each of their points. Well, see, it isn't as if they got these points. I mean, suddenly it sounds like you're stopping the Gestalt story and where the points are all defined by the whole, and you're saying that uh, what you really get is a lot of points. Well, that says, if you saw the figure in the background, as a collection instead of a whole, then you would, I think, he's saying, uh, let's try that again, last chance. But if the figure in the background as a whole are not sensed, they must be sensed in each of the points. Uh, I don't know what that sounds like. But, but if you write, I think, collection instead of whole, that's the right translation. So if you've got the right translation, you figure out what it means. Uh, okay, that's, 
we got that we got through page one. This is hard going. But we you you do the assignment for next week because I'm gonna rush through it. I've got to go faster from here on.